I said huzzah the other day in the CCU, and the attending looked at me as if I had said an expletive. What? Hmm. Is that Curious. is that onomatopoeia that is foreign to seen Arrested Development? That's what I said. Mm-hmm. Was, did you live yet? <laughs> I, th- I don't <laughs> know if Arrested <laughs> Development's really within that generation. Well, yeah, I guess it depends on how old the attending was. But it wasn't too old. We have like two to three. You guys can figure it out. This is an episode of the MedLit Review. My name is Sean Dickton. I'm joined here by Ben Jones. Hi. And Rachel Redfield. Hello. How are you guys doing out there in podcast land? That's a ridiculous question. You can't respond back to me. But welcome to the episode. <laughs> uh, this is the MedLit Review. This is a casual case-based discussion of uh, the medical literature amongst friends. We're all uh, internal medicine residents interested in, interested in learning a little bit more about some of the more recent or more interesting uh, articles from the medical literature and going through some of the statistical analyses and just trying to learn a bit more about them. I love it. Does that sound good to you guys? Yeah, it's all right. All right, fine. Fair enough. We've been doing this a couple <laughs> weeks. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> I, I just love giving you a hard time. I so. appreciate that. It's what true friendship is. Uh, I also like the trial title, Wearable Cardio Urter Defibrillator. Shut up! <laughs> classic Ben reading ahead correcting my grammar reading ahead correcting your spelling uh, Rachel and Ben what thinking um. guys I have a patient for you which is actually based on a uh, actual patient of mine great <laughs> I love that level of enthusiasm thank you Ben uh, this patient is a 64 year old woman with a medical history of hypertension obesity anxiety and obstructive sleep apnea uh, she presents to the ED with acute onset substernal chest pain. It started about one hour ago while she was walking up a flight of stairs. Uh, she says that she had to stop suddenly and sit on the stairs. Uh, she called her husband and told him to call 911, and they got rushed to the emergency department. So you've, they're getting admitted to your service. Uh, they, you come down to evaluate them in the emergency department, uh, and her heart rate is 105. Blood pressure is 110 over 70 millimeters of mercury. Uh, bilaterally, her respiratory rate is 26 per minute. Her oxygen saturation is 97%. Uh, after looking at these vitals, you go in and do an exam. On exam, uh, she's sitting in bed with a fist clenched over her chest. She's diaphoretic and she looks distressed. Uh, otherwise, the exam is grossly normal. When <laughs> when you talk, <laughs> all right, it's it's initially grossly abnormal, but there's nothing else significantly on the exam. Thanks for giving me a little bit of leeway on this, guys. When you talk to her more a little bit about the symptoms, she says that she has had chest pain ongoing since it started uh, about an hour ago on the stairs. It's been 10 out of 10. Feels like a pressure moves up to her jaw, and she adds that she's also feeling a little bit nauseous and out of it. What are your guys' takeaways from this presentation? Well, I, if I heard the story and I was in the emergency room, I would definitely be concerned about acute coronary syndrome, I would want an EKG immediately. She has the definition of typical angina. And when I say typical angina, I mean, I am concerned that the chest pain or angina she is having is from a coronary pathology. What features of it in your mind make it typical? The location of the pain definitely makes me nervous. The substernal chest pain that's rating up to the jaw. This is very classic. The length of time that her chest pain has been going on for, I think you had said maybe over an hour. Yep. Um, initially started with 
exercise. She's walking up the stairs, but now is persistent. Anything else, Dan? Substernal, crushing, exertional chest pain is ACS until proven otherwise. I uh, I couldn't beat this to death anymore, could I? Nope. I tried. You, you tried, but you could. I tried real hard. Um, yeah, great. Thanks. I think the only fun little tidbit I wanted to add is that a fist, a like clenched fist over the chest actually has a name. It's called Levine sign. Or, huh. Uh, it's used to describe ischemic cardiac chest pain. And I don't think it's very sensitive or specific, but it has a good name. And I think I certainly summon an image of acute coronary syndrome when I picture the clenched fist over the chest. Or Maroon 5. But that's more of a, oh God, what? Adam Levine. <laughs> oh God. Adam Levine. Love that reference. I don't understand anything. <laughs> I don't know pop culture. Okay. Uh, the case continued with an ECG. It's shown below because even on an exclusively audio medium, I couldn't resist the temptation to include an ECG. What do you guys think? Mm. Uh, let's see. Hold Listeners on, out sorry. there, what do you guys think of this <laughs> thing you're not able to see? Uh, so the, what I, uh, what, hmm. Ah, there's the ECG. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, uh, it's very str- subtle, Ben. Yeah, so wow. mm-hmm. hold on uh, there. All right. Let me, and I can get it. Future my, gastroenterologist. Um, well, reading through this ECG systematically, we find that the rate. Is Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there are hold. diffuse <laughs> ST segment no, elevations. They're not diffuse. Not diffuse. Okay, fine. There are ST segment <laughs> elevations in leads two, three, ABF. How big? Real big. To quote you from episode one. <laughs> Bigger than five millimeters. Pretty marked. Okay. What does that, what does that guys make you guys think of? Uh, it makes me think of um, STEMI. It's STEMI. Yeah. So I, I, I am showing them an electrocardiogram with significant ST elevations in lead two, three, and AVF. Uh, and some ST depressions in lead one AVL. Um, specifically, I don't see them in like V5, V6. But um, man, oh man, is that a concerning ECG? I think you guys would agree. Mm-hmm. Sure would. Excellent interpretation, gastroenterologist. Um, she. So this is my patient gets 325 milligrams of oral of chewable aspirin. Uh, she's taken directly to the cath lab, and in the cath lab, they find a hundred percent occlusion of the proximal right coronary artery, a drug eluting stent is placed. She gets uh, transferred to the cardiac care unit, monitored there, and then transferred to the floor cardiology service. And now after your excellent initial assessment, you are now the resident taking care of this patient. And you start her on appropriate medical therapy with a high-intensity statin. She tolerates a low dose of beta blocker and ACE inhibitor. And you obtain a transthoracic echocardiogram that has an ejection fraction of 25%. Bummer. On a morning towards the end of her admission, she asks, Doc, other than all these medicines you've prescribed me, is there anything else I should consider that will help me live longer after this major event? Is what do you guys? I'm think? sure she asked. Is there a vest I can wear that may or may not shock me <laughs> at um, any point in time? So with an EF of, oh. sorry, just they're clever. They are clever. Uh, completely undermining your direction for this podcast. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I would uh, strongly recommend a, a aldosterone antagonist for her. Uh, because for NEF uh, below 35%, aldosterone antagonists uh, have a, um, a a benefit. Also, things we should consider are uh, cardiac rehab. Um, that's really the two things that I would that would immediately come to mind for me. Yeah, I usually think of cardiac rehab because um, I know it provides a significant benefit to patients. Uh, the thing that is sometimes forgotten 
uh, after we're dealing with a patient who's had a STEMI is primary prevention because these patients are at a pretty significant risk of ventricular arrhythmias. Cool. What would you guys want to do for this patient with an EF of 25%? And if, what, can we, what can we do to prevent a ventricular arrhythmia? An ICD. But we could. We could put in an ICD. So an ICD, for those who don't know, is an implanted cardioverter and defibrillator. It is a permanent intracardiac device and delivers an electric impulse to the heart to terminate unstable arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. And what, what, what is it that prompts you to put this in a patient post-MI? They're at higher risk of VT. Bingo. Yeah. The, the, we know that the risk of sudden cardiac death af, uh, after an MI is significantly increased uh, in that immediate post-MI um, period. Now, um, is that is that regardless of EF? There's certain factors about the MI that put you at an even yet further increased risk of having an unstable ventricular arrhythmia. And a low ejection fraction, specifically something below 35%, is one of those factors. Uh, in fact, we have a guideline for this, uh, which is put out by the American Heart Association, the American Cardi- College of Cardiology, and the Heart Rhythm Society um, for the management of ventricular arrhythmias. Uh, and I want to know if one of you guys uh, would be willing to read that. Certainly. So in patients with uh, a left ventricular ejection fraction of 35% or less, that is due to ischemic heart disease, who are at least uh, 40 days post-MI and at least 90 days post-revascularization, and with NYHA uh, New York Heart Association Class 2 or 3 heart failure, despite guideline-directed medical therapy, an ICD is recommended if meaningful survival of greater than one year is expected. Thank you so much, Ben. I appreciate it. Um, they add on to that recommendation that it is a, a class one recommendation, and they provide a they say that there is an uh, an A level of evidence. And would one of you guys mind just walking us real quickly through what that means? Because not only are they able to give us a recommendation, but they sort of qualify that recommendation a little bit more. So um, this is an important thing that guidelines have started to do so that it's not just like, hey, we have these guidelines and like there are guidelines. They're actually rating their own guidelines and they're talking about whether or not something should be performed in most basically every circumstance sometimes or should be considered uh, in like a in a reasonable patient population. So each guideline has their own way. Each guideline organization has their own way of organizing these. In the um, American Heart Association, uh, the class one recommendation is an intervention that should be performed pretty much in every circumstance. Um, in class two, the class two A uh, intervention should be considered. It's reasonable to perform it. Uh, class two B, the interve- in- intervention may be considered. It's not unreasonable per- to perform it, but to give yourself a little bit more pause. And then class three, the intervention really shouldn't be performed. It does has no benefit and it may actually be harmful. So the class one and class three recommendations have the highest level of evidence behind them, and the level the um, A, B, and C is actually representing the level of evidence behind them. So uh, level A is the highest quality. It's got many populations. Uh, There are high quality studies like randomized controlled trials or meta-analyses. Level B is moderate quality with like limited populations. Uh, Only a couple of randomized controlled trials or uh, non-randomized controlled trials. Maybe there's a little bit of bias that's corrupting some of those uh, randomized controlled trials, but generally pretty good. And C is really limited data. So you've got these probably difficult questions to answer 
you're doing observational trials and it's really based on expert opinion. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. And just to offer some context, this is something that I always think about in patients who have a STEMI, the uh, recommendation for use of daily aspirin after that STEMI is class one. So you should do it and a level of evidence a, meaning there's a high quality of evidence, uh, which means you should do it. You know, it, it, it's pretty self-explanatory. It gives how strongly they recommend it and why they're recommending it, which is why I like this system that they provide here. And just to go back to that recommendation that uh, we mentioned for implanted cardioverter defibrillators, that also is a class one recommendation, meaning you should do it. And it has a level A, uh, it has a level of evidence A, which means that there's a lot of good evidence behind it. So why don't we talk a little bit about that evidence? Um, we mentioned that the uh, uh, like Rachel was saying, the risk of sudden cardiac death is highest after the uh, initial MI. And we mentioned that the uh, low ejection fraction is a risk factor for that on top of just having had an MI. So why did the uh, recommendation include this caveat of patients who are at least 40 days post-MI or at least 90 days post-revascularization? Do you guys have any idea? It's because their EF may improve. And then their risk gets much lower. That's a big part of it. It's a big part of it. I think that that's sort of what I was thinking. Um, I don't have a lot of other thoughts. I guess one might be that if you put a permanent ICD in someone, do they have complications associated with it? And that actually leads to worse outcomes. Uh, probably not. I think the complication rate's pretty low. Based, but like the risk benefit of complications from ICD versus uh, benefit from ICD, you're probably outweighed by the benefits, but I don't know. That's such a perfect thought. And people have had this question. Maybe the benefit is borne out even earlier. And so there's that. We actually have good randomized controlled data about this. So there's a good randomized control trial in 2004 and 2009, both published in the New England Journal. Uh, which uh, randomized patients to early implantation of an ICD after an MI. Uh, and both of those studies showed no benefit in early ICD implantation. And it's sort of paradoxical almost because this is the period of time where you are at a highest risk of uh, an unstable ventricular yes. arrhythmia. Um, but it sounds like uh, there was, I, so we didn't, we're not digging into these trials today, um, but both these trials showed lower rates of arrhythmic deaths deaths, but they were sort of counterbalanced with increases in non-arrhythmic deaths. And that um, has affected the recommendation. And, and maybe, in, in fact, uh, a relationship of not stratifying patients enough, or like Rachel was saying, the EF, the ejection fraction might improve with maximal medical therapy, um, perhaps even more quickly than, than we realize. So if only there was an option that was not permanent and implanted that we would be able to provide to our patients in the immediate post MI period. You guys got anything? I've heard this, this really fashionable <laughs> pl plus minus fur vests that you can wear. I want one of those life vests. That sounds amazing. What a segue. We're doing the best trial. Thanks guys. A vest, a life vest, um, is a trademark term, uh, but that is, it is a wearable cardioverter and defibrillator. It is made by the Zoll Corporation. We're going to be using a lot of industry names uh, because of the trial. Uh, but it basically pr provides, uh, it does w exactly what I just said. It is a temporary device that one can remove and put on that can provide cardioversion and defibrillation if it senses an unstable arrhythmia. Um, and they look real weird. Uh, they look kind of like vests. They have electrodes on them and sort of release buttons that patients can press. Uh, and to 
prove the uh, prove that this device actually works, uh, a randomized control trial was performed. So um, a total of 2,300 patients with an acute MI and an EF of less than 35% were enrolled in a two-to-one fashion uh, into either a uh, device group uh, or uh, uh, obviously with maximal medical therapy or just the medical therapy. Uh, patients were enrolled from USA mostly, Germany, Poland, and Hungary. Uh, and patients in the device group were instructed to wear this all the time, continuously for three months, except when bathing. Don't take it off during sleep. Don't take it off during other activities. Only when you're showering. Otherwise, you were supposed to wear that. And obviously, we're going to come back to this. Bummer. Sean, I wonder how many people had um, VT when they were bathing. I, I, Depends I, on how aggressively they were <laughs> cleaning themselves. Oh, my gosh. They run into the shower, wash off real fast, and then get that vest back on. Lickety split. The follow-up for this was a phone call at one month and then uh, an in-person visit at three months. Uh, they performed an, uh, this as an intention-to-treat analysis. And as we've discussed before, Ben, do you have any quick thoughts on the intention-to-treat analysis? Uh, attention, intention-to-treat as attention a reminder. To treat. Uh, yeah, attention-to-treat. Intention-to-treat. Intention <laughs> yeah, and intention-to-treat, just as a reminder, um, is a... Um, is the optimal way to analyze uh, your data because it... While it may minimize a treatment effect, it prevents any non-random attrition bias, uh, such that if people cross over to the um, uh, the other group, uh, it is performed. You don't know if it's performed in a uh, non-random fashion, so it could introduce some bias if you do only a per-protocol analysis. So, uh, not that you would do only an analysis, uh, only per-protocol, but intended to treat generally reduces uh, bias, but can minimize some treatment effect. Awesome. For a more detailed explanation of this, check out SAGE episode two that Ben masterfully presented. So this was an intention to treat analysis. The primary outcome was arrhythmic death, which was a composite outcome of sudden death uh, or death from ventricular tachycardia. Uh, it was done, uh, measured at 90 days. Uh, and there were a number of secondary outcomes as well, specifically death from any cause and non-arrhythmic death. Um, there was also indeterminate cause of death, um, which was assumed to be non, uh, not to be arrhythmogenic. Interesting exclusion criteria included patients on dialysis and patients with clinically significant valvular disease. If you already had an ICD, obviously they excluded you. Uh, okay. Importantly, there was no difference in baseline characteristics between the groups. The average age was 61 years old. Uh, it was 74% male and 85% white. The average ejection fraction was 28% and about 84% of the patients had uh, received uh, some sort of percutaneous coronary intervention like our patient here. The primary outcome, arrhythmic death, occurred in 1.6% of patients in the device group and 2.4% of patients in the control group. So 1.6% of patients in the device group, that's 25 patients, and 2.4% of patients in the control group, that's 19 patients. Those numbers might seem off, but that's because it was 2 to 1, so there were twice as many patients in the device group. The p-value on that was uh, 0.18. It was considered not statistically significant, so there was no difference in arrhythmic death. Uh, of note, the 25 uh, patients in the uh, wearable cardioverter defibrillator group that died of the arrhythmic death, nine were wearing the ICD at that time, uh, and four of that nine received appropriate shocks, and despite that, uh, still died of an unstable arrhythmia. 
Wow. Wait a sec. I have a, I have a question about this. So um, yes. of the 25 patients in the wearable, wearable cardioverter defibrillator group that died of arrhythmic death, only nine were wearing the device. Does that mean that 16 of them were bathing? <laughs> <laughs> ben. Masterful. Yes, as always, of course. Uh, there was a high, they recorded a lot of data on bathing, showering, specific soap habits in this trial. Uh, no, as you can imagine, there was a lot of issues with uh, obviously maintaining this vest, keeping it on. Sure. Uh, it seems, I don't know if you guys have seen it. it. It's it's not as overwhelming as you'd think for something that can shock your heart back into a normal rhythm, but it's not the easiest thing to wear. Uh, yeah, I've had patients wearing um, uh, wearable rhythm devices. I'm trying not to use a trademark name um, that uh, can measure things like atrial fibrillation or uh, supraventricular tachycardia or ventricular tachycardia. And they come back to me and they're like, you did not tell me that that thing was freaking huge <laughs> um, and bulky. And I was like, you're right. Cause I haven't worn one. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get the impression that these things are a little bit large and I think compliance would be an issue. Uh, Sean, I also had a question about the, um, the two to one. Why did they do two to one? I have no idea. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. I tried to find this out. I think they just wanted to get enough power, which is a whole separate issue. I'm going to yep. get into. Sure. Right. So not only were over half not wearing the wearable device at time of death, it only worked half the time anyway. So a lot of that is probably due to just refractory VTAC or VFib that despite mm. these shocks did not work. Or mm. maybe they received appropriate shocks, but for whatever reason, um, whether that be positioning or timing or something, um, time to resuscitation by some other healthcare providers, um, the patient still died, unfortunately. Mm. Okay. Um, of note... Death from any cause, which is a secondary outcome, was lower in the device group, 3.1% compared to 4.9% with a p-value of 0.04. An important correction here, and they say this very very explicitly in the study, is that this p-value of 0.04, right, right near our borderline significance level of 0.05, uh, was not corrected. Uh, ben mentioned on one of our previous episodes about multiplicity and we're not going to go into it in too much detail, but I wanted to know if you could shed any light on what this means to have an, a P value that's uncorrected for multiple comparisons. Sure. So, um, multiplicity, uh, leads to increased type one error and reduces statistical power. Um, so if you basically, the idea is if you perform more tests, you have a higher chance of finding a value that is, uh, reaches statistical significance. So the probability of committing no type one errors, uh, on like, let's say n number of independent tests is one minus the alpha to the nth power because it's probability, uh, and the error, the probability of committing at least one type one error is one minus all of that. So one minus parentheses, one minus alpha to the nth power. End parentheses. So, Whoa. <laughs> as an example, let's say we ran 25 tests with an alpha of uh, 0.05. Uh, so that's 0.95 to the 25th power, which is 0.277. One minus 0.277 is 0.733, meaning that there is a whopping 73.3% chance that at least one of those tests is committing a type 1 error. 
How do we know which one committed the error? We don't. <laughs> so we can only try to correct for multiplicity. That so, was so dramatic. I absolutely loved it. So wait, <laughs> I actually didn't do that math. So if you perform 25 tests, mm -hmm. include your, your primary analysis, your secondary analysis, just, just but the mere fact that you're performing this test over and over again at the 0.05 level, mm -hmm. you have a 73% chance of committing a type one error. Among all of those tests. Among Correct. all those tests, at least once. At least once. Hmm. Woof. Yeah. Okay. Wild. So the, how does that apply to our study? So in this trial, p-values were not uh, adjusted for multiplicity. So they were not adjusted for multiple testing. Uh, in the supplementary index, they do uh, apply some different criteria. Uh, they do do some different uh, multiplicity testing, uh, uh, specifically on that endpoint of death from any cause and depending on whether you use the most conservative or the most liberal um, statistical analysis that p-value varies anywhere from 0.046 to 0.45 okay yeah i okay. mean so that's pretty different you're saying you have a um 45 percent chance <laughs> uh, <laughs> that this is totally random versus a four and a half percent chance yikes it doesn't uh, it doesn't rouse confidence mm -mm. in this assessment that the device improves mortality from any cause. No. Yeah. Um and when we when we think about multiplicity, I mean, the, there's a difference between your planned comparisons, which is your primary outcome and your unplanned comparisons, which is what they're kind of trying to do here. It's a form of data dredging. You're like, we've got all this data. We got to find something here. <laughs> got to get it. But um so yeah, that the that uh, lack of correction for multiplicity does give me a little pause. Yeah, thank you. I think we should focus a little bit more on that in all of these randomized control trials that we look. There's an incredible New England Journal article from May of 2018, a review article about multiplicity in randomized control trials, and it sums this problem up so well. It says, the more comparisons that are made, the more likely it is that a comparison that appears to be significant will be falsely so, period. So <laughs> succinct. Uh, okay. Anyway, back to our trial. Um, the study also, after the data that I just mentioned to you guys, which is their primary analysis and attention to treat analysis, also includes an as-treated analysis, as Ben was saying, per protocol. Of course they do, because the intention to treat is going to underestimate our treatment effect. In the as-treated analysis, uh, we change our unit to person months, and we have a rate a, a rate of arrhythmic death of 0.37 per 100 person months in the wearable cardioverter defibrillator group, so our device group, to a rate of 0.86 uh, arrhythmic deaths uh, per person month in our control group. This is a risk reduction of 57% uh, and a p-value of 0.03. Again, not corrected for multiple comparisons. What do you think, Rachel? <laughs> <laughs> feel like something's fishy i feel like <laughs> agree that's they're just they're trying to find something and you know it's there could potentially be something here i mean they only had um nine of their 26 people who died weren't actually or 25 people that died were uh wearing the vest we don't know how long people were actually wearing the vest so oh, we do oh we do oh, we're boy. gonna get oh, there great. perfect Wait, actually great. why don't i just talk about it right now okay 
This factors into their estimation of effect size, but they estimate at the beginning of the trial that patients who tolerate the device will wear it on average of 21.7 hours per day. Okay. Actually, patients who wore it wore it about 18 hours a day, which I thought was pretty good. 2.8% of patients in the wearable cardioverted defibrillator arm never wore it. Uh, And the patients wearing the vest on any given day reduced from 81% initially to 41% at day 90. So I think those are some numbers that sum up the general sentiment that it's hard to wear this vest. Sure. Yeah. I mean. So that was a fun little segue as to how difficult it is actually to wear the vest nonstop. Um, From this, the authors conclude that the wearable cardioverter defibrillator did not significantly reduce arrhythmic deaths in patients with an MI and a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 35%. Reasonable conclusion? Reasonable yeah, I'm conclusion. Glad that they weren't like, oh, yeah, it works. No, <laughs> right, exactly. Because uh, it didn't. This trial, though, is so much more fun than the data that I just presented to you. Because it is, for all intents and purposes, a negative trial, right? It presents some questionably significant data. It presents some, an as treated analysis that's also not corrected, but there's so much more behind the trial when you look through the history of the trial that I just had to talk about. So the trial began in 2008. It comes out of UCSF, Aww. which I didn't mention. Oh, okay. why? Oh, Oh, cause it was when I uh, graduated from high school. Congratulations, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Um, initially it was intended to be a dual study, uh, vest predicts. So after the vest trial was done, everyone at day 90 was going to be randomized then to either get their ICD because their rejection fraction remained less than 35% or they were going to get an implanted loop recorder because their rejection fraction increased above 35% and they were going to see ventricular, uh, um, uh, ventricular arrhythmia burden. How interesting would that be with the overall purpose of developing some sort of risk stratification because more than just yet the number itself, the left ventricular ejection fraction influences um, whether or not someone is going to have an unstable ventricular arrhythmia. It was initially funded by uh, the NIH and the NHLBI and they had dual funding from Medtronic and Zoll. Zoll is the corporation that creates uh, um, that manufactures life vests, trademark, or wearable cardioverter and defibrillators. Uh, and Medtronic was going to provide the um, uh, implantable loop recorders, which were going to help with the second portion of this trial. Uh, GE provided equipment, but no direct funding. Uh, and in the first year, they enrolled only 244 patients, and this was way less than they actually estimated. So uh, and I, both the NIH and Medtronic pulled their funding in 2011 and left Zoll to foot the remainder of the bill for the remainder of the study, which is very interesting. And because of this, the trial authors changed the primary endpoint. The original endpoint was all-cause mortality. They were trying to prove all-cause mortality, which is, you know, the w- one of the most ideal endpoints to have in medicine. Um when they realized that there was no way that they were going to hit their initial uh, enrollment numbers, they had to actually change this endpoint. And especially, I'm not sure what the timing of losing funding was for this, but they did just that. They changed their endpoint. What do you guys think about changing a primary endpoint in a study? <laughs> General uh, distrust of the study. I don't know. I mean, you've, you've randomized people for a specific purpose and a specific endpoint. When you change that, you can potentially introduce bias. 
uh, it just seems a uh, poor form. It seems like you're trying to get to uh, uh, the value that you want. I don't know. What do you think, Rachel? I don't know. I mean, giving them the benefit of the doubt, maybe it's okay. It's ultimately, it's not like at the end of, at the end of their discussion, they weren't like, and the vest is amazing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, they uh, they wanted to publish some data. I don't blame them for a lot of money has gone into it. Yeah. I think the biggest issue with it is that you've already enrolled patients into this trial and started the process. And then after that, you've changed it. So no matter whether you exclude those patients or not, uh, which they did from, I think most of the analyses, you've introduced some sort of bias into your understanding of the study after you've changed things uh, post-enrollment. So the initial sample size calculation was 4,500. This was done to detect a difference, a significant difference in all-cause mortality. Uh, They had to decrease this to actually 2,300 to detect a difference in arrhythmic death. The power was decreased to 70%, so they had a 30% chance of failing to reject a false null hypothesis, or a 30% chance of incorrectly saying there was no difference when in fact there actually was a difference great so i'm just talking about some limitations of the study it sounds like we talked already about a lot of these um it may have been pretty underpowered we talked about the power just now of 70 percent um we didn't go into this too much but five percent of the deaths were actually determined were actually deemed indeterminate and removed from the primary analysis so we're not sure what whether those were related to an, a ventricular arrhythmia or not um Obviously, the device wear time was significantly lower and, as one might not expect, had a bimodal distribution. So some people wore it all the time and some people wore it not a lot of the time. And just another uh, limitation is that there was a ton of industry involved in this, obviously, when you're trying to take on a uh, study this this big. So, guys, what do you all think? I, I would say that this uh, study does not support the use of wearable cardioverter defibrillators after NMI. Fair. Bold. What do you think, Rachel? Um, yeah, I agree. I don't, I mean, maybe there's potential there, but I think they just need more people is what it's sounding like. Yeah, quite possibly. They are planning to publish the as-treated protocol at some point, uh, which is exciting. So I think my big takeaway from this article is that perhaps this is not a good device for every single patient who has an MI who has a low ejection fraction. Uh, I think it's well said by Drs. Page and Field in the accompanying editorial uh, that in the context of a particularly motivated patient at high risk, perhaps they would actually benefit from a wearable cardioverter defibrillator. Speaking of class of recommendation and level of evidence, in the 2017 guidelines on ventricular arrhythmias, Uh, There is a recommendation that relates to our wearable cardioverter defibrillators. Uh, It says, in patients at an increased risk of sudden cardiac death who are not eligible for an ICD, and in that group they include having an ejection fraction of less than 35%, but being within the 40 days of an MI, um, the wearable cardioverter defibrillator may be reasonable. So that would be a class 2B recommendation, and they say the level of evidence is B, way less robust than our 1A's examples that we had discussed earlier. After all of this, basically their guidelines are to potentially use it? Class 2B, man. Okay. You, it may be reasonable to consider. Where, where is our 2B? May be considered. Not unreasonable to perform. Because it doesn't hurt anybody, I guess? Yeah. 
or maybe we're saying this study was underpowered or uh, maybe there is a mortality benefit, even though that was an uncorrected p-value. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the the benefit of a shock in a patient with a shockable rhythm, I mean, okay, I, I guess. I just, it's really hard to draw that conclusion. I think we, I think we really want to believe that this shock is going to make the difference. Um, I mean, I think part of the argument stems from some of those patients who got shocks and survived, you know, I didn't, we didn't really delve into that group, but yeah, we can. No, no, I don't, uh, don't necessarily need to, okay. but we can. <laughs> there are patients who were wearing the wearable cardioverted defibrillator who received shocks and survived because of it. And I think that's where the recommendation comes from. It's you, it might, it's not unreasonable to consider, especially in a higher risk population. Um, so going, circling back to our patient, I made a referral for cardiac rehab for them. We gave her uh, her seasonal influenza vaccine because both of these things are beneficial in patients who are post-MI. Uh, she was discharged without a wearable cardioverter defibrillator based on the fact that she had had this history of obstructive sleep apnea, uh, did not use her CPAP, uh, and really was not interested in the extra cardiac devices, uh, even though she was interested in other things that might have prolonged her life. Uh, she followed up in three months. Her ejection fraction was found to be 45%. She was tolerating all of her medications, including her dual antiplatelet, uh, and did not really complain of any palpitations or syncope. Great. Cool. Nice. Thanks, guys. So they just played around with statistics, essentially, <laughs> until yeah. Bingo, bingo. They did a dredged. They did 12 different analyses, primary and secondary endpoints, and if you sort of just do enough analyses, some of them might be have a happen to have a p-value of less than 0.05. So are you ready for what mm -hmm. that p-value should actually be? Mm -hmm. I can tell you right now. It, Isn't it 0.45? Uh, what is 0.05 divided by 12? Yeah, well, that's, that's the most. It's 0.0041 is what it should be. Because if you do 12 tests, it's the p-value significance. Oh, it needs to be less than that. Yeah, yeah, to be significant. Yeah. Mm. That's the that's the Bonferroni correction, mm. which you can do. There's also like other different ways to do it but yeah it's yeah. bizarre do you get one of you guys want to do the outro this has been an episode of the medlit review uh, we uh, welcome your feedback and your follows and likes on instagram and twitter at med underscore lit review uh lit underscore review in fact, uh, as a reminder, this is a um, educational podcast only, meaning that uh, the opinions expressed on this uh, episode are our own and not those of our employers. Um, huge shout out to uh, Ryan Dictan, our podcast editor, and Aaron Miller, who does all of our art. Uh, follow him on Instagram at uh, useless med school notes. Uh, and please give us feedback. Email us at uh, themedlitreview uh, at gmail.com. Uh, we really look forward to hearing your thoughts on the episode and ways that we can improve. Yes, email us, like us, please. Follow Aaron. He's amazing at useless med school, useless med school notes. And have a good night, everyone. Bye. Or a good day. Or a good day. That's a good point. <laughs>
And I read these things prior to analyzing the article and I was wildly concerned after comparing his like little tidbits to the actual data of the article. Wildly concerned. What do you mean? They're a t- they don't discuss. There's no multiplicity discussion. There's no. It makes it seem as if this wasn't as treated analysis. Sean, I'm shocked. I, <laughs> they didn't want to undermine the device they were selling. Great pun. 